Well, good morning once again. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're continuing our way through the text this morning. And of course, this will segue somewhat into our our annual Great Commission meeting, which will happen here in just a few hours' time. You're aware we've been working our way through the book of Acts, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Peter and John have worked an incredible miracle in which they uh, were on their way to the temple and uh, there was a man there asking for alms. And of course, Peter's statement to this man was, silver and gold, have I none, but what I have I freely give. And in the name of Christ, he proclaims, rise up and walk. And we've learned that it is the name of Christ which signifies both identity, that is who he is, as well as office, that is what he is. And it is only in the name of Christ that we can be healed. More importantly, most significantly, it is only in the name of Christ that we can be saved. The Pharisees and the religious establishment, chief priests and the elders that uh, oversee the temple complex call these guys into a meeting. First they arrest them, they throw them into jail. The next day they come into a meeting with them and they say to him, they say to them, why are you preaching this guy's name? And of course the response is, Why wouldn't we preach in this guy's name? There is no other name given under heaven whereby men can be saved. It is only by the name of Jesus. And, of course, we saw last week they basically said, well, that's nice and all, but uh, stop preaching. We We don't want you to preach that anymore. Even though that's what you think, you need to just cut it out now. That's enough of that. And, of course, Peter's response there is uh, whether it is right to listen to men or to God, you decide. But we cannot help but speak and testify of the things that we have seen. Of course, they, uh, they let him go, and these guys go home. And uh, I want you to look with me, verse 23, chapter 4. We'll read the text one more time, we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Acts 4, 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together, all of them praying together to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, and by the Holy Spirit said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I want you to just underline that if you want to in your Bible there. Underline all boldness. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's just bow for a moment, ask God to help us by his spirit, and then we'll jump in. Father, we just pray that as we look at this text this morning and as we consider this afternoon as a church what it is you are calling us to, I pray, Lord, that that boldness would be at the forefront and at the focus of our mind, that we would know that because of our faith in you, because of the surety, because of the certainty of the promise that we have in the cross, 
that we would pray for all boldness, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, not in the least, but more so than that, we would be courageous through faith in your Son, by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, to declare to all the good news of forgiveness and reconciliation, peace with the living God. Father, we pray you give us the boldness to do that. Open our eyes this morning, we pray, by your Spirit to understand exactly what's going on in this text. Father, encourage us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. A number of years ago, uh, after I, Shanti and I were newly married and living together, you know how it is with newlyweds. They don't have two nickels to rub together between their fingers. They're still starting out in their careers. They don't have a lot of money. And, of course, there's a whole house now that has to be filled with furniture. And uh, a lot of us end up going to Ikea and getting that, uh, you know, that, that cheap stuff that's kind of put together with sawdust and glue and particle board. And of course, you know, that stuff all falls apart. Shanti and I opted one day to go into a, uh, into a pawn shop to look at used furniture and, and different things that were there. And uh, we saw all the normal stuff, the particle board, the, the glue and all of that kind of stuff. And we were looking at it. And of course, we saw at that time a nice, a really nice coffee table that was made out of solid southern oak. But of course, it was more expensive than the many options that were on offer that were particle board and glue. So we were looking at these things, and the, the pawn shop owner came over to Shanti and I at one point in time, and he was trying to encourage us to really, really consider going with the more expensive option. Of course, we didn't have two nickels to rub together, and so naturally, being the penny pinchers that we were, we wanted to go with the cheaper option. And I remember he said to us, you know, let me just show you something. I get stuff like this all the time that comes into this place, and uh, I want to take you out back, and I want to show you something. He took my wife and I through a back door into a back room, and there was a, a, a beat-up kind of coffee table made out of particle board. It was all twisted and, and uh, really just battered on, kind of leaning to one side. And he says, I want you to just hit it real hard. And, of course, we're, you know, I'm not going to hit your coffee table. I, I don't need to, like, beat on your furniture here that you're trying to sell. He's like, no, 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 I want you to hit it. And, of course, he took the initiative, and he put one boot on it, and he just gave it a good kick, and the whole thing collapsed. And he says, now follow me back out to the showroom. Go back to the oak coffee table. He grabs the doors. He pulls those doors open, and he just slams them shut as hard as he can pulls him open again, slams him shut as hard as he can. I mean, he's just whacking on this thing. And then he jumps up on top of it, all 180, 190 pounds of his weight. And he's kind of just up there jumping around on top of it. And we're just sitting here amazed at this whole thing. And he jumps down and he says, which one you want to buy? And of course, we would love the oak one, but we only had two nickels to rub between our fingers. I'll never forget the expression that he said that day. This... This coffee table is the genuine article. It's the genuine article. And how exactly did he show us that it was the real deal? By placing it under stresses and by putting it through abuse, which it was easily capable of handling, that the cheap knockoff, the imitations, were incapable of handling. I start with that today because we see here in Acts chapter 4 what true confidence in Jesus looks like. We see here the response of the early church to the banging and the slamming and the jumping 
of tests and trials, we see the reaction of true faith, the genuine article, what it looks like in response to the stresses of the world. I want you to look with me again, back at the previous section. We'll pick it up in verse 18. They called them, this is the chief priests and the elders, they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. You can't do this anymore. You need to stop this. These are the people in authority. These are the people who are respected. These are the people who not a few weeks before had had Jesus Christ crucified. They're preaching Christ. These guys come to them and say, in case, in case we weren't clear with you, you stop preaching this right now. Peter's response. Look what he says. Verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And his response is, we're not going to listen to you. You guys decide. Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? We know what we've seen. We know the one from whom it comes, and we're going to say what we need to say. Look at verse 21. When they had further threatened them, they let them go. They didn't let Jesus go, but they let these guys go. They say, why? The verse tells us. Finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had just happened. This is a reference to the miracle that took place in the beginning of chapter 3. It says, it was the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Church, All of this is happening according to God's sovereign plan and his purpose. They are coming up against opposition. They are coming up against persecution and tribulation. They are encountering it as Christ told them that they would, and their response in the face of it is to continue to preach and to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. This is something that is not readily appreciated by many of us in this day and age. When we encounter persecution, when we encounter opposition, our immediate thought process, and it's not wrong to ask this question, but our immediate thought process is, was I overly offensive in the way that I shared that? Did I intentionally try to rub that guy the wrong way? All witnessing, all sharing of the gospel always, always must be done out of a heart of love. Don't misunderstand me. And it's always right to reflect on the way that we're sharing the gospel. But our first thought, hear me carefully, our first thought should not be when someone rejects the message that there is a flaw or a fault with our presentation. There very very well may be. But our first thought should be simply that all of this is happening according to God's design. And indeed, the persecution and the opposition that we are experiencing is normal. It's natural. You'll recall in James chapter 1, verse 2, one of the earliest letters written to the church, James writing to the early church says, Consider it all joy, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Hupamane, Greek word, I wonder, no, my Greek students are all out of the room. Can't pick on them today. Hupamane, this is a word that they should actually know. A bearing up under. Hupa, the Greek prefix there, it's a preposition, under. Mone, to stand or to bear up. It has in view this idea of a guy doing squats with a barbell on his back. He's bearing up under the weight. 
And what James is saying is that the testing of our faith, when trials and difficulties come into our life, the, tre- the testing of our faith produces that hupamane, that endurance, that ability to bear up under it. And he says, let that endurance have its full effect. In other words, don't immediately discount it. When you run in opposition and people are like, I don't like this Jesus you're proclaiming. I don't like the message that you're saying. You shouldn't say to yourself, I'm doing this wrong in the same way that a power lifter who's squatting underweight when his thighs begin to burn shouldn't say, I must be doing something wrong. That is the muscle tissue working. That is normal. The pain, the searing hurt that you experience is part and parcel of power lifting in the same way that sharing the gospel and running into opposition is part and parcel of being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. James goes on and he says, let this have its perfect effect, its full effect, in order that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Church, Jesus wants to use the opposition of this world to mature you. That's how you get from being a foundational, beginning, immature faith to a proven faith, a tested faith, where people can look and they can say, this indeed is the genuine article. We can bang on it. We can jump on it. We can pounce on it. And regardless of the stresses that we put it through, this individual indeed loves Christ. And it's not only in James that we encounter this. Peter as well. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, at the coming of Jesus, you may rejoice with His exaltation. For if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That Peter who wrote that book says rejoice when the fiery trial comes upon you. This is him encountering it for the first time. Encountering the opposition. Being threatened. Being ordered to stop speaking about Jesus by the very same individuals who killed him. Paul writes the same thing, Philippians 2. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I rejoice and I share in this with you all. Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. All of this comes from Christ himself who taught in Mark chapter 13. If you are my disciples, you will be hated by all men for my sake. Now, we come here to this passage. Peter and John, they proclaim the gospel that this guy got healed. It's a great time. They tell him to stop. They say there is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. We have to preach. They threaten them. They let them go. This is what they do. They go home. They have a prayer meeting, and immediately they ask all their brothers and sisters for this intense persecution to be lifted? No. That's not what they pray for. You see, Peter has in mind the goal of a refined faith. Peter has in view 
a crown which he's going to press forward towards. Peter has in view this idea that God is in control, that all of these events are happening according to his plan, that he is encountering the persecution, him and John together are meeting with these trials and these temptations, and the solution is not to pray that these things go away, that these people go away, that the situation will fade, that they can just go on uncontested, unchallenged, and continue to preach the gospel without adversity. No, 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 that's not what is necessary. In humility, what this church is going to pray is rather than giving us an easier time and a lighter load, give us all boldness. We'll pick it up. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the, and the sea and everything that is in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said through the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage? Jumping down, verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's what they prayed. Now, number one, consider this. Who exactly is praying? When we first read this passage, we're tempted to say, this is the apostles praying. This is Peter and this is John who are praying. This is what the apostles are praying because they're the ones that have to start the early church. They're the ones that have to plant churches all across Asia Minor and the Mediterranean world. This is where the foundation of the gospel is going to happen. Therefore, this is a prayer for those guys to pray for that time and that age for their unique circumstances. But if you look closely at the text, it doesn't say that Peter and John did the praying. Notice with me, verse 23, when they were released, this is Peter and John, and probably the guy that got healed. He's probably in now too. Hey, I'm all for Jesus. They go, they meet up with their friends, literally their own, the ones who belonged to them, the group that they were a part of, namely the church. Was this the whole church? Was this the gathering at the tail end of chapter 4? It says 5,000 got saved. Was this the 3,000 that got saved previous to the, at the end of the sermon he preached at Pentecost? Is this the group of 8,000 or 10,000 people? Or is this more of a small home Bible study? Is this a care group? We can't know. The word isn't specific. It doesn't say the whole church gathered. It isn't the whole gamut of people that have been saved at this point. It could be. The text says they went to their own. They went to, as many translations will render it, they went to their friends. And they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, they go to their group of people, their friends, and we don't know how large this gathering was. Maybe it was just an intimate gathering of 10, 12 individuals. Maybe it was 100. We don't know. Maybe it was a huge section of the church. We can't say for sure. But they say, here's what happened, guys. And the response, verse 24, when they heard it, that is, when the guys who weren't there heard what Peter and John were saying to them, they were the ones who prayed. Notice that. Verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. This isn't one guy standing up saying, man, we should pray, guys. Everybody bow your heads. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. This isn't Peter and John saying, we were bold now we're going to pray for more boldness, although that's part of the group that's doing the praying right now. No, no, the people who heard it, 
They didn't immediately stand back and say, oh, man, you guys, you must have said something offensive. I mean, they're obviously desperate to hear the good news about Jesus, and you guys must have just spun this thing the wrong way, or maybe you didn't touch on heaven enough. Maybe you overemphasized hell too much. I, I don't know, but you guys need to step back and rethink your strategy here and your approach. That's not what the early church said. That was not their first thought. Peter and John, they report, here's what happened, here's what we said. And their first thought, when they hear this, is not, man, there's a problem with you guys. Their first thought is, we need to have boldness. And they pray together. It says right here, verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. This is not the people who just had the encounter. This is the people who had the encounter with a whole bunch of other people who weren't even there, which means you're hearing this in the same manner that they heard it. I can say to you now, 2,000 years ago, Peter and John went and had this altercation with the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they proclaimed the name of Jesus. When you hear that, is the immediate cry of your heart to get down in prayer before the Lord and say, God, make me bold. I wonder if it isn't rather we hear that and we think, wow, that was, those are exciting times. What they were doing there in the early church in the first century, that was cool and exciting. I wonder what's for lunch at the potluck later today. They reported, here's what happened. And the church said, we need to be bold. I'm telling you, here's what happened. And I hope that the prayer of your heart as we prepare for our meeting this afternoon, I hope that the prayer of your heart during this worship service right now and as we come to a conclusion here in a few minutes is that God would give you a spirit of boldness. It was prayed after persecution but let us at, let us look more carefully at the question what exactly was prayed i say now lord look upon their threats notice that verse 29 lord look upon their threats they start off by acknowledging who god truly is they say you're the sovereign lord they quote from the psalms why do the gentiles rage why do they plot in vain you know everybody's setting themselves against the lord's anointed against jesus they recognize All of this is unfolding according to the sovereign plan of God. Done. We see it for what it is. We recognize that this persecution is coming into our life in order to perfect us. We accept that for what it is. And then they say here, Lord, take note. Look upon their threats. Observe and see what it is that they are saying to us. Okay? Now, you might be tempted to think that this is a prayer request in which they're saying, God, they want to hurt us. Please rescue us. Please save us. Look at their threats. You see, they're threatening us. But if you come to that conclusion, you've missed the first part of the prayer. They take a few verses to establish the context of what it is that they're really coming before the Lord with. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. This is a prayer in which Peter and John and all of the church together are recognizing that the real hostility is directed towards Jesus. That the real animosity, the real hatred is not primarily against Peter and John. It's against the name that they proclaimed. All of chapter 3 and chapter 4 makes that painfully clear. There is no other name. There is one name. We are only saved by the name of Christ. When this guy gets healed and everybody comes and says, Peter and John, this is awesome. You guys are great. And they want to give him a clap. Peter's response is, why are you looking at us as though it's by our own piety or by our own power that we have somehow raised this man up to be healed? We haven't done it. This man has been healed through the name by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. They're emphasizing name. When the Pharisees and the chief priests arrest them, they say, who are you? What name is this name that you're preaching in? And Peter says, we're preaching the name of Jesus. They say, who told you to preach in this name? Stop preaching in this name. And Peter says, it's only in the name of Jesus that we can preach. There's no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. And they say, well, you need to stop preaching in this name. They say it to him again, and they further threaten them. And then Peter comes, Peter and John together, they share with the church what's happening. And the church says, we see that the threats that are coming against us are not really about us. They're about the name of Christ. We see that the opposition that is coming against us comes against us only because we stand for the name of Christ. They recognize that, and that is the basis of the prayer request. God in heaven, sovereign Lord, take note of their threats. It is not a prayer for personal safety. It is not a prayer for deliverance. It's not saying, oh God, boo-hoo, I'm in trouble down here. God, the name of your son is being challenged. The honor of the king is being questioned. Notice that. Do you? Do you notice that? When we come together to pray in our care groups and our Bible studies, our tenant talks on Sunday morning when we pray at the start of every day. God, I'm having problems with this person. They don't like me. Is it about you? Or is it about the name of Christ? That's an important distinction. They say take note of their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Number one, they're not concerned with their own personal well-being. Say, how can you really say that? Because of what they ask for, boldness. We'll get to that in just a second. When they say take note of the threats, number one, they're saying the name of your son, the honor of Jesus is being challenged. In heaven, God Almighty, can't let that pass. Number two, we need help to be bold. Will you give us the boldness to uphold the honor of the name of Jesus? That's the prayer. That's what they're asking. That word there, boldness, it comes from the Greek word parousias. It's the trait 
Listen carefully. This is according to BDAG. Where's Dr. Marlowe? Is Dr. Marlowe in the house this morning? There he is, my brother over there, PhD in New Testament. Dr. Marlowe will tell you, BDAG is one of the preeminent Greek dictionaries of the Koine Greek New Testament. It's the preeminent. Am I right in saying that? Would you agree preeminent, the preeminent dictionary? Got the head nod. Good, good. Every scholar who's worth his salt goes to BDAG if you want to really know the meaning of a word. BDAG says this word, parousias, translated bold. It's this. The trait of being willing to undertake activities that involve risk and danger. That involve risk and danger with regards to being straightforward in speech or conduct. Did you hear that definition? What Peter is asking for. God, help us to be willing to engage in activities that necessarily will involve risk and danger to ourselves in order that we can be straightforward and truthful regarding the name of Jesus. Is your prayer life being challenged this morning? Because mine sure is. Number one, they're not praying for safety. They're not saying, God, take this threat away from me. They're saying the name of your son is being challenged. The honor of Christ is being threatened. Grant to us, this whole church here, grant to us that we would be willing to engage in activities that will involve risk and hardship, pain and persecution in order that we would be willing to uphold the name of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is asking for. That, I beg your pardon. See, we all read it that way. That's what the whole church is praying together for. This afternoon, we're going to have an annual Great Commission meeting. Most, uh, most nonprofits, they have an annual meeting every year. They refer to it as their AGM, their annual general meeting. For us, there's really one business that we are preoccupied with, and that's the business of the Great Commission. So we don't refer to it as an annual general meeting, although it certainly functions that way in the parlance and the nomenclature of BC Societies Act. But for us, it's the annual Great Commission meeting. Because our function here at First Baptist Church, our purpose is to take the name of Jesus Christ as far as we can take it, God willing to the ends of the earth, God willing to our neighbors, God willing to our friend who works in the office right next to us. Not to win them. We saw that from the sermon two weeks ago. Not to win them. That's between him and the Lord. We take the gospel to witness. As a part of that, as a part of that calling, we must be praying for boldness. We must be asking God to give us a spirit that is willing to embrace risk and hardship for the sake of upholding the name of Jesus Christ. I wrote a letter to the church. Um, I, uh, I wrote a note to the church, and uh, it was in the book of reports that you received as well. And uh, in this letter, I, I referenced this particular passage. And I said to you in that letter that what I wanted to do was to suggest to you that bold was a good word for our church right now. And I said that bold was the opposite of most church tradition. Now, immediately you hear that and you think, oh, no. What's going on here? Is he getting ready to just change everything up and top to bottom redo everything? No. 
We love the traditions that have been handed down to us by our forefathers. We love, we love the practices and the things that we've been taught by those who have gone ahead. But in our tradition, in those things which we practice, which we observe, listen carefully, there is, because of the natural inclination of our hearts, a tendency to fall into routines and habits which become ritualistic, the typical day-to-day formula of how we live our lives, and they are comfortable. That is, in fact, the exact opposite of what Peter is praying. His prayer is not, God, make us comfortable. God, they're threatening us. Take those threats away from us. His prayer is, no, no, no. They're threatening the name of your son. Give us courage despite the discomfort to uphold the name of your son. And so in the letter that I wrote to the church, I said that, uh, of course, most traditions, and you know what most traditions and customs are, they are often unexamined comfort zones. They are the way we have always done things. Now, again, please don't misunderstand me. I have a fondness for the traditions that have been handed down to us. But we can never accept tradition simply because it was what our fathers gave to us. That is to engage in a form of spiritual and mental numbness. Doing things the way we've always done things, the way we've gotten comfortable doing things, the easy way to do things, this should be our enemy if we're going to pray a prayer of boldness. Tradition can sometimes keep us from scrutinizing ourselves in humility before the Lord. It can keep us from challenging ourselves to ask the question, can we do more? Could we go further? Could we more boldly proclaim the name of Christ? And my hope and my prayer for you is that that is your prayer and your hope as well. A couple of things I want to touch on this morning, and I mentioned these in my letter as well, are worship gatherings. Specifically, the question I posed is, how more boldly could our worship gatherings be on Sunday morning? If we consider the church as a living spiritual organism that is gathering together, not just with each other, but gathering together in the presence of the Lord, He is here walking among us, then the question must be asked, it behooves us to ask this question properly, are we preparing our hearts for worship adequately? I challenge you, church. I don't know that we are. I'm not talking about style of music. I'm not talking about the style of the worship. I'm not talking about, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not in any way ever going to suggest we need laser light show, fog machine, all the kind of crazy stuff that you see sometimes. That is not at all what worship is all about. Worship is about humbling yourself before the Lord, praising his name, doing so together with your brothers and sisters. If we habitually walk through the door at 1035, Are we really approaching the worship of Christ with a heart to adore him, to praise him together in unity with each other? If you can't say amen, say ouch. I love you. I love you. 
Rather than saying, church starts at 10.30, we'll come at 10.35. We need to say, I have the privilege before God Almighty, the Most High in the universe, to praise His name. This is a testimony to the world around us. In the same way that I know I ought to be on time to my job, I'm going to be on time to praise the one who loves me most. Amen? That means 10.35 is not the time you show up. 10.02. I don't mean to give anybody over here a weird feeling with that statement. I say 10.02 because it's easy to remember. I just do. I just do. You'd have to ask Keith about what I'm referring to. He He can tell you all about that. You ought to come early to talk with your brothers and sisters because we are a spiritual house. You ought to come early to gather together, to welcome people, to fellowship, to chat. I love the people that are here at 10.30. We come upstairs from the 10 talks. There's about 10, 15 people here. It's not to say I don't love all of you, but we have a sweet time. I'm thinking of my brother Dell back there. I'm thinking of my brother Ted back there. I'm thinking of Joe Riley this morning, although not every morning. You were here early this morning. Joe, good on you. Good on you, buddy. He's like, I knew what you were preaching on, so I knew I had to come, right? So (laughs) it's wonderful. We're sitting around. We're chatting. We're talking. People are coming in. There's not this feeling of rush. Let me fly into my parking lot as fast as I can. Throw the car and park. Grab all the kids. Quickly, quickly, quickly. We're going to be late. It's 1035. No, we come in. We're calm. We're relaxed. We're enjoying each other's company. We're fellowshipping together as friends ought. And together we're holding hands and we're saying, let's praise the name of Jesus. How much bolder could our worship services be with something just as simple as saying, because I love God and I know God loves me, I will revere and respect the time of worship I have appointed, that he has appointed, that we together are honoring as a church. Second question. How much more bold could our evangelism be this next year? Our gatherings are a testimony. Our worship of the Lord is a testimony to the community around us. But of course, they see this. They, they observe my neighbors see me every morning, at about se- every Sunday morning at about 7.30, pulling out of my driveway. They see that. They know what I'm doing. But they won't understand it unless I go to them and use words to proclaim the gospel to them. This last year, we took time as a church to identify our one. We said, listen, Jesus leaves the 99 in order to go in pursuit of the one. I want you to find your one. I want you to pray this next year. I want you to think if God puts a man or a woman in your life that you can share the gospel with, you identify that person, and I told you, go and share the gospel. We did a great job identifying our one. I think we can do a better job of proclaiming the gospel to our one. This is why the theme for this year is boldness for us. We know who it is that God has put in our life. He's there. She's there. Now we need to have courage to get out of our comfort zone, to pray for God to give us boldness, and to go to that person and to share the good news with them and to invite them, invite them to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ questions you should be asking yourself is who can you reach immediately or whom do you know for a fact is right there just waiting for you to share with them not that they want to hear it but that that's the person that God has given you and then the last question 
how much more bold could our fellowship be this year? The community of believers living together, loving each other, serving each other, ministering to each other, taking care of each other, that fellowship is recognized. That fellowship is a witness. That's a testimony, again, to the transformation that has taken place in our hearts because of the gospel. Can our church members better communicate to each other that we are in a covenantal relationship with each other? By virtue of the fact that we are members of this church, we belong to each other. That's a covenantal relationship. I fear that sometimes the way that we approach our worship services, the way that we approach our church on Sunday morning, this is the service I go to. And that's probably what lends itself to us showing up at 1035. The worship of God, the knowledge of our relationship with Christ ought to lead us to an understanding. Uh, This is not a service we go to. This is a family we are a part of. We are brothers and sisters, not people who just happen to cohabit the pew next to us. Koinonia fellowship takes time. You know, regularly you hear, oh, well, this person got upset because of such and such thing, or this person got upset because they felt that the other person was saying something rude or offensive. We're all unique. We're all quirky. We're all eccentric. Me too. We all have weird mannerisms. We all say things, particularly me being from Texas, that sometimes take a little bit of interpretation to cross the cultural barrier. Do you understand that you're all in Christ? You all love Jesus, and yet at the same time, you all come from wildly different backgrounds with different upbringings from different parts of the world, some of us. And so, of course, it's to be expected. It should not be a surprise that when we get together in a room, sometimes we say things that we aren't really quite sure what to make of. No, fellowship takes time. We live in a culture that celebrates convenience. We are the home of the fast food drive through where you pull up to one window, you tell them exactly what you want, and 30 seconds later, you get the order that you asked for from the next window. We want it quick, we want it fast, we want it convenient. Church doesn't happen that way. It takes time, it is slow, it is a process in which you talk to a person, the first time you talk to that person, they may have a weird muscle twitch that makes it look like they're constantly rolling their eyes at you. And the first time you talk to that person, you're like, whoa, this guy is a weird person. I don't know what to do with this guy. But you keep talking, you keep loving, you keep dialoguing. Eventually, in time, you come to a place where you're comfortable enough to say, You know, I just think that sometimes you roll your eyes a little too much, in which he then can tell you, you know what, when I was a kid, I was born with a stagma, and I can't can't control my eye fluctuations sometimes. What you think is me rolling my eyes at you is just the natural process of what goes on with the muscles behind my eyeballs. Whoa. Different. Didn't require a phone call to the pastor. You think I'm joking. I love you guys. If you can't say amen, say ouch. We are unique people. We have unique personalities. We come from different backgrounds. Rather than just assuming the worst about each other, let's assume the best about the person across from us and remind ourselves that in order for me to have true koinonia fellowship, that is a true sharing of my life intertwined with the life of the person next to me, the believer, the brother, the sister sitting next to me, it's going to take time. It's not going to happen in a 30-minute drive-through worship service on Sunday. I'm going to have to spend 
spend the time. I'm going to have to have the dinner. I'm going to have to go out for the coffee. I'm going to have to show up for the tenant talks. I'm going to have to go to the care group Bible study. I'm going to have to talk. They're going to talk. And we're going to spend time getting to know each other. And at the end of all of that, God willing, we'll love each other more for it. And our fellowship will be bolder in its witness to the world because of it. At the end of the day, when I look at this passage in Acts chapter 4, these guys getting together, they're praying for boldness, they're praying uh, to stick together. It reminds me of uh, a speech that, I, that Shakespeare wrote into one of his plays. It's been so often cited, so often quoted. It's from Shakespeare's play of Henry. And of course, they're on the verge of a great battle. And one of Henry's uh, lieutenants, one of his uh, comrades, this fellow by the name of Westmoreland, makes the statement to Henry, king, the king. He says, oh, that we had here, they're on the verge of a great battle, a great conflict. They're going into hardship. And Westmoreland says, oh, that we had here but one ten-thousandth of those men in England that are not working today because it's a holiday back in England, St. Crispian's Day. And the king responds, and he says, What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men than the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. By Jove, I'm not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear. Such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. That he which hath no stomach to this fight, I say, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for his convoy will be put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day, this day, is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safely home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named, and he will rouse at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and go on to see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispian's day. Old men forget. Yes, all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages what feats he did this day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford, Nexeter, Warwick, Talbot, Salisbury, and Gloucester be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall never go by. From this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, and this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now in their beds shall think themselves cursed that they were not here and hold their manhood cheap whilst any speak that fought with us here today upon St. Crispin's Day.
Courageous stuff, that poem. It's quoted repeatedly throughout history during the Napoleonic Wars. Just prior to the Battle of the Nile, Horatio Nelson, first Viscount Nelson, then referred to as the Rear Admiral of the Blue, he cited this particular line from Shakespeare in order to rouse his men to greater courage to face the hardship and the trial of the day. This phrase, Band of Brothers, appears in the 1789 song, The Hall of Columbia, which was written for the inauguration of George Washington, the first president of the United States, in order to commemorate those troops which bravely fought alongside of him. During World War II, Churchill was known to routinely quote this passage from Shakespeare in order to steel himself and give himself courage for for the obstacles that they faced in terms of the German juggernaut that was World War II. Stephen Ambrose borrowed the phrase Band of Brothers for the title of his 1992 book on Easy Company of the 101st Airborne, which fought during World War II. And it was even used as recently as the legal battle in 2000, the battle in which President George W. Bush was in a great contest with, at that time, the Vice President Al Gore in order to secure the presidency of the United States. George Bush's legal team just before standing before the judges of the Supreme Court to argue their case on the ballot count, all got together in a room, a side room there at the Supreme Court. And in order to encourage each other, to give each other courage and bravery, they cited the speech to each other. It's a fine speech, don't get me wrong. But I like the prayer of Peter and John. I like the prayer of the early church. I like the word of God in which they said, Lord, note their threats and give to your servants all boldness. And I hope that's your prayer as well, church. It's better than anything Shakespeare ever wrote because the God who stands ready to grant us the boldness we need is the very same one who boldly came and died on the cross for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as your church gets ready for communion, that as we prepare for our annual meeting here in just a few moments' time, we ask, O Lord, that you would give us all boldness, all boldness, Lord. We pray, Father, that we would be filled with such a passion and such a zeal for the name, the name above all names, the only name under heaven whereby any man could ever hope to be saved, that a passion for the name of Jesus would so consume us and so drive us with such a relentlessness that we couldn't help but pray for more boldness day by day. Father, my prayer here for First Baptist Church is that we would not rest on our laurels on past achievements, past victories, things accomplished, good and wonderful as those are, that we would always be looking for ways to improve, that we would always be pressing ourselves forward, that we would always do so with a view to the danger and a willingness to embrace the risk. God, give us that courage, we pray. Give us boldness for the name of Jesus Christ. And it is indeed in his name that we pray. Amen.